Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. Another week of Political Rewind uh, coming your way. We're really glad to uh, have you uh, back with us. I hope everybody's staying safe. The news about the coronavirus in Georgia is uh, troubling. And, of course, at some point in the days ahead, we're going to talk a great deal more about that. Um, But we want to take up an issue today that uh, has really been in the headlines recently. You know, I said last week on on one of the shows that it's interesting how sometimes major shifts in our thinking, in change in society, seem to move at a glacier pace. And then suddenly, a moment arrives when there's a transformation of people's thinking about an issue they've been troubled over for a very long time. So an example of that, of course, is for decades, Americans resisted the idea of gay marriage, of acceptance of the LGBT community uh, as uh, equal, full members of our community. And that changed incredibly quickly. We all remember that. Another example may very well be that in the aftermath of the uh, death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, and others, suddenly we're reassessing our connection, connections about race, the heritage in the South of the Confederacy. And Jamel Bowie in the New York Times made a statement that I think is a great way to start the program and to introduce the panel. He wrote in his column the other day, it doesn't necessarily follow that a nationwide protest over police brutality would, for some, become a reason to take action against Confederate statues and other controversial monuments, but it has. This is because the George Floyd protests are not just about police violence. They're about structural racism and persistence of white supremacy, about the unresolved and unaddressed disadvantages of the past, as well as the bigotry that has come to dominate far too much of American politics in the age of Trump. Born of grief and anger, they're an attempt to turn the country off the path to ruin. And part of this necessarily is a struggle over our symbols and our public space. I think that's as good a way as any to set up our conversation today. Jim Galloway, uh, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, back from a brief hiatus. It's good to have you back, Jim. We missed you. Are you, uh, your hand is healing. Your wife Judy's knee is on the mend after surgery. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, I had a little, a few skin grafts on. It's breakfast time, so I don't want to go into too too, too much detail. But <laughs> yeah, I, I tell you don't. what, I, 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 t- I, t- I tell you what. Uh, let me just give a shout out to to Dr. Stephen Bailey and his staff up in Ackworth, who who literally <laughs> took me in hand. And we'll leave it okay. at that. <laughs> okay, glad to get that in. Uh, we're joined also today by Michael Thurman. Uh, we all know that Michael Thurman is a longtime elected official in Georgia. Uh, and now currently serves as CEO of DeKalb County. But uh, Michael Thurman considers himself first and foremost, and I think for good reason, to be a, a historian. Uh, he's the author of a couple books that deal with Georgia history. Uh, the one that's most pertinent to our conversation today is Freedom, Georgia's Anti-Slavery Heritage, 1733 to 1865. The center for the book, 
uh, said that this was one of the essential books for all Georgians to read. Uh, so, Mike Thurman, today you come to us in your role as historian, but we can't get away from the fact you are CEO of the county. <laughs> yes. Uh, good morning, Bill. Delighted to be with you. Um, we're also joined today by uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver. She represents Decatur, which is a town that has just gone through a historic change in terms of taking down a Confederate uh, monument. And Mary Margaret, we're going to talk about that and your reaction to it in just a couple minutes. But how are you doing? Your th- the session is finally at long last over. How did you hold up? Longest session in the history of Georgia. Um, I'm glad it's over. We're all, of course, glad it's over. I'm worried about who gets sick from all our uh, conferencing together, but I'm glad it's over. I'm recovering. Good. We're glad that you're back with us as well. And uh, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, to the show today uh, Sheffield Hale, who is the president and CEO of the Atlanta History Center. Sheffield, over the years, has undertaken a remarkable transformation of the History Center. Those of you who have visited it realize just how much he's done to completely uh, help us rethink what Atlanta history, Georgia history is all about. And uh, every day, Sheffield, you seem to be adding new elements to the History Center, including you're going to kind of gingerly reopen to the public at the end of this week, right? We're very excited to open up all of the History Center on Friday. We opened the gardens two weeks ago, and uh, we've had a trickle of people, and uh, if you want to come to a socially distanced place, this is it. So uh, come on in. Sheffield has, uh, we're going to talk to him in a couple minutes, um, because he has written a lot about what we do about Confederate monuments in the state of Georgia how to contextualize them without necessarily ripping all of them down. So we're going to get to all that in a minute. But Jim Galloway, let me, two, it's interesting. We planned a show a week ago or so, uh, having no idea that it would be yesterday that the state of Mississippi would become the last Southern state to finally vote to remove the uh, Confederate battle flag from their state flag. That's a historic moment, Jim. Yeah, it it is a historic moment. Uh, I would add that the the Confederate battle emblem kind of still exists on 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 some Southern flags in kind of a disguised uh, manner. And 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 look, the flag that we have flying right now is is a is a Confederate era. Uh, banner. It, it's 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 a it's a kind of a, a descendant of the stars and bars, uh, uh, and it, it has a strange strange history in 2000 because it's the flag that uh, Tyrone State Representative Tyrone Brooks wanted to to substitute for the the 56 segregation era flag, uh, and it became known as the the uh, it, lawmakers rejected it because it, Tyrone had pushed it so hard that it became known as the black flag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So we had that in Mississippi yesterday, just about 10 days ago, Michael Thurman. uh, Another moment of history uh, occurred when the monument to the lost cause at the Decatur Courthouse, which had been the subject of controversy for a very, very long time, uh, was finally legally uh, removed. Big Crane came in. Picked up the monument, whisked it 
away after Judge Clarence Seeliger ordered that done earlier in, in June, saying it had become a threat to public safety. And that's an important point that we'll get into in a, a couple of minutes here. But, but Michael, it was certainly a moment that many people uh, were awaiting with uh, uh, great enthusiasm. Absolutely. And it was the result of a protest, of, of hard work, of advocacy uh, by many people over, as you just pointed out, a significant period of time. Uh, it's an indication as to how movements actually succeed. There were students at Decatur High School who marched beginning in 17. Uh, there were columnists who wrote, um, uh, Dan Wisenant with the Decaturists uh, played a key role. Uh, you mentioned Judge Seeliger, who has been an historic figure in DeKalb County for decades, um, issued an order. The Board of Commissioners, as well as the Decatur City Commissioners, that all at some point in time passed either ordinances or resolutions calling for his removal or contextualization. Uh, that was an ecumenical group of pastors in DeKalb County, white and black and Christian, Jew, Muslim, came together to state that the movement, that the monument should be removed. And ultimately, of course, uh, we, and I got to give a shout out, as we say, to a guy named Mike. You mentioned the crane, but there's a gentleman named Mike who works for facilities who arranged to have that crane uh, come in in the middle of the night and to remove the monument. So it took all of us, as it always does, in large and small ways to force or fuel significant change in our society. All right. So, Mary Margaret, I, I want to get to you first, and then I want to start the, the this conversation over just what these Confederate monuments really are all about. But before we do that, Mary Margaret, you wrote a very, uh, I think, passionate essay about watching uh, virtually, I guess, uh, on the Internet, the monument come down. But you talked about the fact your office is right there. You've had to pass by that monument uh, uh, for, you say, probably a thousand times in the many years that you've been there. You say, as a young lawyer in your 20s, you worked with Georgia Legal Services in most of the rural counties of North Georgia. Every one of those historic courthouses I visited had some form of Confederate lost cause memorial. And I never once paid attention, either in the beginning or afterwards, in all my trips to court. I was busy doing important things for my clients, I thought, and reading monument language was not part of my day's work. Uh, but you go on to say you suddenly had an awakening in which you realized what monuments that you saw all over the state, but also in Decatur, were really all about. Mary Margaret? I've been participating, as, as Mike has talked about, this long journey in Decatur. It feels like it's very long. So it wasn't exactly a sudden awareness, but it was an awareness watching it on my computer about midnight uh, not long ago that uh, I've been an officer of the court and a practicing attorney for decades and for over three decades within 100 yards of that obelisk. Um, my memories as a very young lawyer, my 20s going to all those courthouses uh, are very vivid in my mind. Uh, Sheffield, Mike Thurman, and I are all lawyers. And as officers of the court, we need to step up. Uh, Dax Lopez's column was very moving to me 
um, which I mentioned in my column. He is, uh, his office is in that courthouse, a Latina gentleman, and he has had to watch that obelisk from his office every day as I have on the opposite side of the square. All of us that have used that courthouse for the last decade, many of us like me have not been in tune with what those, I never read that obelisk until this controversy came up. And it was a good lesson to me. It was a good lesson to me, one of, again, my white privilege that I didn't need to read it. It didn't have a personal meaning to me. It was a work site to me. Just another lesson that uh, our surroundings matter, our, the words matter, and particularly us as lawyers uh, who go in and out of those courthouses need to see where we're walking. Dax Lopez, of course, is a judge in DeKalb County. He's a, a Puerto Rican. He was, in fact, at one point appointed to a federal judgeship, uh, but uh, uh, it was blocked. His appointment was blocked uh, by David Perdue because Lopez was associated with the Georgia Association of Latin Elected Officials, uh, an, associ- a, a, an organization which obviously Senator Perdue feels is somehow undeserving of having a member on the bench. Uh, and he, as you say, writes about the fact every day he would see that memorial as a, as a tribute to oppression, injustice, and exclusion, and be reminded of a time when, when men and women of color had no rights and no voice, a time when slavery and white supremacy were not only accepted but celebrated as being ordained by God. Very powerful. All right, Sheffield Hale. So, and, and let's get into now the history of all this. I think... Um, Although we're gaining knowledge, we're getting a better understanding of what a lot of these lost cause monuments, when they really came about, what they were there for. I do think still people may believe that these monuments were erected as the Civil War came to an end, as the South uh, saw itself licking its wounds and uh, trying to uh, come to terms with the future, so that these monuments date back to 1870-whatever. That's not the history of these at all, is it, Sheffield? Well, it is of a few. And so, for example, you have the monument in Oakland Cemetery that was dedicated in 1870 to our Confederate dead. It was about mourning. And so there were some initially right afterwards. But they weren't put in public spaces. They weren't put in courthouses at that period. They were put in cemeteries mostly, and they were more funereal. It's later in the 1880s and 90s when you start seeing these statues proliferate throughout the landscape and in courthouses and town squares, um, schools, universities, that's when um, when they um, really started to get to get get, uh, get going. And that was a totally different period. And that was a period in which Jim Crow was um, on the rise. So we're talking about post-reconstruction, right? We're talking about the right. period after Reconstruction when the South again asserted itself as a uh, – it, the white supremacy of the South was beginning to be felt again. Is that a fair way of saying it, Sheffield? No, absolutely. It was about asserting power, asserting dominance, who was in charge, and it was really um, about changing the narrative – and it's beginning this, what we call the, the lost cause narrative, the great rationalization. How could we have lost the war as Southerners? And now look at us, we're back in charge again. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Hale, uh, 
let me. You had a, a, a very, very interesting uh, op-ed in the Journal Constitution uh, a week or so ago, in which you pointed to legislation that had been strengthened by the uh, by the by the General Assembly. I think it was was it last year in 2019 on the, the on the removal of of Confederate monuments, and you made a very very interesting point. In, in that, in, in that, you said that the, the legislation could actually speed up the removal, because in in essence, what it did is that it shut off all con- all community conversation about whether these these monuments should should exist where they are or not, uh, which which kind of leads in that that uh, that kind of restriction on speech. Uh, 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 it, it 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 forces people to seek other avenues, as as happened in Decatur. Uh, with 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 Mr. Thurman here, so, uh, so my question here. So, uh, so let's put put. Well, let's put it in context and then ask your question. What you're referring to is the fact that the legislature, over a period of time, and most recently in 2019, strengthened it, has made has forbidden local uh, jurisdictions from taking any action uh, to remove a monument. It has no. to be done by the state legislature, right, Mr. Galloway? Isn't that what you're talking about? Yes, yes, uh, exactly, exactly. And and I'm, I'm wondering, I, I just want to build on that that point, Mr. Hill, it, it, because it seems to me that because uh, the South kind of clung to this lost cause history, really for, for, for the better part of a, for a century and more after the Civil War, we don't have the facts. I mean, the average person doesn't have the historical backgrounding to 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 have a, a cogent discussion on whether those monuments actually ought to stay or not. Yeah, that's been a lot of the problem, and it's really education. Um, and and that's what we've been advocating for the History Center. And 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 how do you get that education going? And and what we say is uh, in our website, which we've been trying to um, promote for local people to take and use as a basis for the education, is status quo is not an option. You either remove the monument or you contextualize it. But the most important thing is to have a conversation about the monument, to get that going and to and to get the facts in front of people. Uh, and, and the law, what it does is it shuts down the avenue for that conversation. And, and then it leads people to either uh, be very creative legally like they were in uh, Decatur or, or, or to tear them down. Um, and and so that's what I when you restrict people and their options, um, there are consequences to that. Well, and first of all, I appreciate the fact that Bill and the panelists are referring to the monument as lost cause monument. Unfortunately, in general conversation, they often refer to as. And I think that's a misstatement of fact, and it creates a tremendous amount of confusion. Uh, I'm a person who has read and studied and researched uh, Civil War history in America uh, throughout most of my adult life and even before that. And one of the things I want to hope and make sure we understand that we sh- I don't reject Civil War history. Uh, the Civil War was a seminal moment in American history. Uh, It's the point when, as Abraham Lincoln said, America redefined freedom and what it meant to be an American citizen. Uh, It's the war where 200,000 black men, 90% of them were former slaves, 
who literally threw down holes and cotton sacks and picked up Union muskets and changed and turned the tide of the Civil War, who transformed that war from a war over states' rights into a war to abolish slavery. So there should be no hesitancy in researching and writing and commemorating Civil War history. The problem, of course, is that there should be no moment in time where we put the public space or allow the public space to be used to propagate and promote lost cause history, whereby the, the South was romanticized, there was a denial that slavery was at the center of the conflict, and consequently what you're really finding is that this moment in time that you mentioned is the inflection point where that movement to literally rewrite history where the myth of the lost cause actually became Civil War history in the South. And now you're having a divergence of that where the lost cause is being rejected. And I would hope a better understanding and more detailed uh, commemoration factually of what actually occurred in that war, because that was the war where, where, where 250 years of struggle to abolish slavery was realized. So, Mary Margaret, I don't want to completely uh, uh, move away from this important point that Jim Sheffield and Mike are all making, which is uh, they're all saying that uh, the notion that a local community, that a city, a municipality should be able to make decisions of its own accord on what to do about a Confederate, a lost cause monument um, seems uh, fairly straightforward. To be clear... The state legislature, as a comp, the, initially it was a compromise when, when Governor Barnes changed the state flag, got rid of the battle emblem to the uh, from as a dominant uh, uh, image on the state flag. The the compromise was okay. Well, then now the legislature will have to be the ones who decide on uh, other tributes uh, to the Confederacy, taking all that power away from uh, local control, local local governments, right? When I was not in the Georgia General Assembly uh, during Roy Barnes' term, and it was during my gap years, but I, under, I wonder, like many compromises that are made in the Capitol, I wonder how many of the General Assembly members knew that they were giving up their local control over something that was important to people. Uh, Republicans talk all the time about local control, and both Alina Perrin and I, in the last several years, have introduced legislation in the General Assembly to return local control to cities and counties to make their own decisions, their own uh, city and county decisions about what to put around their courthouses. In fact, when Jeff Mullis, who brought the Protection of Southern Monuments bills uh, last year, came before the committee, I asked him specifically, wouldn't it be appropriate, sir, to allow an amendment to be added to this to return local control? And he was very quickly moved beyond that. I said uh, in my some of my commentaries about the Decatur situation, which has been such a, a wonderful example of community response, as Mike has, has told us about, a wide variety of community response. It's been a perfect example of why local control is so important. I think that creative lawyers made a colorable argument that the statute was improper on the exception of where a monument can be declared a public nuisance. I thought that was creative. 
uh, they found a judge who was appropriately intellectually engaged in that issue. They won, and they removed the thing. Mike with the crane removed the thing uh, before there was an opportunity for the Sons of Confederate to to um, come in now and try to stop removal. What I'm curious about, Mike, is um, whether the Sons of the Confederates or other advocates for maintaining these monuments will come in, file a lawsuit, and we lose. DeKalb County could lose this lawsuit, as I've said, and we'll be prepared to pay some attorney fees and we'll be prepared to say we did it right anyway, <laughs> even though we took a chance. We everything worked, but if we ultimately lose that little legal battle, I think it'll be more evidence to the General Assembly that this ridiculous law that City of Decatur, DeKalb County, cannot make a decision about its own monuments is fairly ridiculous. Of course, I've been advised by my county attorney, Ms. Vivian Ernst, to not speak on uh, <laughs> ongoing active litigation, as you cannot sustain, particularly anyway. Uh, but, you know, we stand ready to defend the actions taken uh, in this regard. But what I really would like to see, uh, and I'm going to reach out to actually Senator Mullis. Uh, I was just waiting for you all to get out of session. Uh, I would like to work with the concerns, the sons of Confederate veterans, to relocate that statue to a more that monument to a more appropriate location uh, at some place uh, in our state. Uh, what we have to do, and by the way, you know that's ultimately what needs to take place, is that it just shouldn't be. It is a part of history, but it's not a part of history that should have been displayed in the public square. And as Sheffield pointed out, the laws cause narrative in order to understand it, it's very critical that we understand how all of this unfolded and the political, psychological, and emotional reasons that led to the propagation of this myth and the damage that it done and has done, I think, to the progress of our state and the South in particular, as well as to race relations. And it's good that we're moving away from that uh, dominant uh, theme in our history. Sheffield, jump in. What I, what I like to refer to them as is Jim Crow monuments, and they're monuments for that period of time. And you have to understand why they were elect, erected in the context in which they erected. And what they do is they, they act as sort of like a historical fissure. And if, there's this whole fog of the lost cause that is um, imbued in everything that was going on at the time. And and we start it starts to give you a glimpse of what was actually on their mind. And this, so this is, you know, Lost Cause was in film, it was in books, it was in schools, in the, um, the United Arts Confederacy infused it throughout every part of the school system, and it's even made it into the United States Citizenship Test. So it is, it is everywhere. And these monuments provided something that's very um, focused, that you could focus on and really understand the history of that whole period. Yeah, uh, to, 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 to Sheffield's point, Bill, uh, I was talking to Todd Gross with the Georgia Historical Society over the weekend, and and he, he was talking. He, he talked about just the the uh, unconscious uh, buy-in to the lost cause that exists in the United States. Uh, and and an example, he 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 pointed to the the historian's use of the phrase "Union troops" versus "Confederate troops." Uh, and and what what he what he was what what he said was, 
you know, that was part of the argument. Uh, that that was kind of a, a concession to to Confederates who who said they really didn't commit treason uh, back during the Civil War. They really weren't trying to overthrow the gov- government. Uh, and and the phrase Union troops really didn't come into into parlance until about the 1880s. Until until then, it was U.S. troops. But then they started using the phrase UN. Troop, uh, union troops to kind of paper over the 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 uh, the, the the issue of of treason and and the claims of renewed citizenship for for Southern Confederates. That is a really fascinating uh, perspective. <laughs> Look, we we've got to get to a break, uh, but I want to continue the conversation on the other side, and I kind of want to expand this uh, because it strikes me that uh, we can talk about the the lost cause and. Some of the problems, that, the, the problematic nature of monuments to the lost cause. And then there's something else going on here, which is a sudden rush to take down monuments and statues uh, that celebrate the lives of slaveholders. All part of the same kind of drive that's going on right now. And I want to talk about that with our panel. We'll do that when we come back in just a minute. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're joined today by Jim Galloway, by uh, historian and DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, by uh, the Atlanta History Center Sheffield Hale, and by State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver of Decatur. Um, By the way, uh, Sheffield described that period, uh, post-Reconstruction period, when when white Southerners reasserted their dominance over the black uh, freed slaves in, in the South, uh, because the federal government had decided no longer to protect or to enact any kind of laws that would would uh, allow the the blacks who'd been freed a- any form of success, I would urge you to read Nicole Hannah Jones' essay in the New York Times. It was published yesterday. It is a look at uh, the history of African Americans in this country, described in a way that I think you'll find really compelling. If you follow me on Facebook, which you can you can find me there easily, I've posted a link to it there. And Sam, maybe we can find it and post it on our social media too. All right. Um, so, uh, I, uh, Michael Thurman, I want to turn to you. Uh, Mary Margaret referred to the Dax Lopez impassioned statement about the removal of the obelisk uh, to the lost cause, and I pointed out uh, I read a sentence or two of it. But one of the things he says in there is. Why do we celebrate that aspect of Georgia history? Why don't we instead talk about Georgia's history of being anti-slavery, which is ironic because we know this was a slave state. Nevertheless, your book, Freedom, Georgia's Anti-Slavery Heritage, Michael Thurman, speaks to just that. Well, uh, Judge Lopez's column was a very moving as well as uh uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver's piece. I enjoyed both of those. But clearly, that's an aspect of our history 
uh, that we've ignored, quite frankly, that James Oglethorpe in 1733 established Georgia as the only one of the so-called 13 original British colonies where slavery was prohibited. And Oglethorpe uh, advocated mightily to prevent the importation of slaves in Georgia. And I believe that that is an aspect of our history that could be that could redefine who we are as a state and more, and also redefine American history. So Judge Lopez is absolutely right. And if you look around Georgia, there are statues and memorials to Oglethorpe, but it's hard to find any acknowledgement that this man, uh, 50 years before the uh, abolitionist movement was, was born in Britain, advocated on behalf of limiting uh, the African slave trade. He ultimately, when forced out of Georgia, uh, the polls turned against him. I, I like to say Fox TV went at him really hard back in the day. And they ran him out of Georgia in disgrace. <laughs> <laughs> and he returned to England and mentored the man who became the father of abolitionism, or the former abolitionist movement, who was Granville Sharp, a young uh, British lawyer. So that's an aspect of our history that somehow, and I think because it didn't really sync up with the Confederate part of our history, that we basically have marginalized Oglethorpe and his early advocacy and the fact that Georgia helped plant the seeds of abolitionism, not just in Georgia, but across the world. So, all right. So then let's expand that. And I want to get everybody in. Start with you on this, Sheffield. So uh, we know about the slave history that, unfortunately, Oglethorpe didn't get his way in Georgia. Uh, we know about the slave history in the South. 20 years he did. For 20 um, years he did, Dio. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, Sheffield, we now, in addition to seeing this movement to get rid of Confederate uh, tributes of all sorts, we now see uh, people advocating for removing the statues of, of even our founding fathers, slaveholders. Thomas Jefferson, uh, George uh, Washington, uh, another example. Um, in, uh, in, in, uh, in the New York Times uh, uh, today, uh, Charles Blow says, on the issue of American slavery, I'm an absolutist, and slavers were amoral monsters. And he goes on and makes the point that Thomas Jefferson's uh, statue shouldn't be up, and George Washington's statue shouldn't be up. This is something, I think, that takes us into a world where we really have to think harder about how we feel about it. It's, this is hard to get our arms around in many cases, Sheffield. It is, and, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's how, do, how do you analyze people in the past? Do you analyze them for the worst qualities? Do you analyze them for what they're best known for? Do you put them all in the mix? And and who do we need to um, idolize? What what is the what is the purpose behind that? And we need to think about it. And we this is an area for very nuanced, hard working. And this is uh, something that I, I welcome, and uh, and think that it, it will, we will have uh, a lot of learning that comes out of it. But it's all about people, and you know, be careful who you put on a pedestal, right? I mean, this goes back to the. If you want to go Old Testament on it, you go to Daniel and talk about feet of clay, right? So everybody has made a feet of clay. How do we want to represent history? Do you want to represent through people, or do you want to represent through events? And this is a good time to reassess and look at it all. 
Mary one Margaret? Of the, one of the pleasures, one of the reasons I enjoy politics is that I learn history. I mean, my, Mike Thurman is a good example that I always learn something important in history um, from him and many of my colleagues down in the Capitol that see it so differently and so personally that I become more and more aware of that. I had a, a friend of mine tell me that uh, black parents would never let their child read. They would be very conscious about taking their child away from certain values, maybe uh, diverting their attention, totally avoiding, had a conscious decision-making every single day about what their child would read. I have to, I'm a native DeKalb County, and so I have to ask Mike about the status of Stone Mountain. I went there as a Girl Scout. I went there as a teenager skipping school after prom, doing bad things. I was there uh, two weeks ago uh, playing golf and got in a little trouble by kind of posting that I'm playing golf today, taking a break. And somebody wrote back, you can't, you cannot play golf at, at Stone Mountain. And Again, it was another awareness of how deep, how deep um, our feelings are. So, Mike, what's the status? Well, you make a great point. Let me put it in context. There is a important nexus or intersection between history and politics. Uh, when I served in the legislature, I remember the day I realized that the state capitol is nothing but a museum. Right. And there are many relics still serving there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's a museum, first and foremost. That's what it is, not just the two-headed snake. But if you look at the statues and the portraits and everything, and it's very, very important how we the control, and they always say Victor, uh, the victors write the history. As it related to the Civil War, what was different is that the, that the losers actually wrote the history. And that's what's unique about it. And one of the things as to Stone Mountain and having served uh, Governor Deal appointed me, I guess I was the first African-American on that uh, uh, board. I'm not there now. And one of the reasons I really wanted to serve, I wanted to understand who the people are. And quite frankly, how many of them are neo-Nazi racists who are serving on this board? I mean, that was just a fact. And uh, I and one or two of them I'm still worried about, but the great majority of them <laughs> were just uh, are not. Now, what needs to happen at Stone Mountain as it relates to the statues is not so much whether it's a statue of uh, Jefferson or, or Washington. What people are pushing back against is how they've been romanticized and not presented in a more truthful, accurate way. There is no man or woman who has stood or provided or, rep or became a leader in our country who can stand blameless or without sin. One of the problems with the Lost Cause movement was that it tried to minimize the role of slavery in the role of the Confederacy and his decision to rebel against the United States of America. What we now need to do is to create a more accurate, inclusive history, not just of Decatur and DeKalb, but the entire state of Georgia. Tell people provide our children with facts about who the people really were, what's good, bad, strengths, and weaknesses. The thing that will transform Stone Mountain, and I've said it before, is all we need to do is tell the truth about who came up with the idea of the carving, who financed the early years of the carving, and when and why was the carving actually completed. Um, it's not a Civil War monument at all. 
He is a monument. Well, Jim, you know the history. Yeah, Jim, yeah, right. Jim Galloway knows it better than anyone because I read it. Jim, what is the history behind the carving on Stone Mountain? Well, the, the history, you go back to, you, uh, number one, you go back to uh, uh, about 1905 and, and uh, uh, the movie. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking here. Somebody help me very quickly here. Birth of a Nation? Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation. 1950, birth of a nation. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind 15. of it led to the it, it led to the 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 revival of the Klan, which was convened on top of Stone Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the the carving started there in fits and starts. Uh, but it was really truly financed and completed during the South's fight against integration. Uh, and that has to be viewed as 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 a, a a good part of the motivation, you know. But but but, but Bill, uh, to, to your original point, I would say that there's there is a lot of subtlety that we have to that we have to accept in in American history, and and that's one of the reasons why why I think Sheffield's right about the stress on education. Uh, you had a, a, a an op-ed over the last couple of days uh, by David Blight, uh, who, the author of of, uh, of an excellent excellent biography of Frederick. Uh, Douglas, and he was he was pointing to to calls for the uh, the Emancipation Monument in in Washington D.C. to be to be removed because it 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 it, it pictures uh, Abe Lincoln uh, uh, kind of uh, bestowing freedom on a uh, on a kneeling black slave, and if you if you just go by the imagery of that alone, then then you can see you can see the objection. If you go into the history, if you if you if you also note that that this this monument was dedicated by Frederick Douglass, I think in the mid 1970s or so, and in 18. that speech that eight, 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 correct me here, Sheffield, eighteen seventy, yeah, eighteen seventy, eighteen seventy, and in in the speech he used to dedicate that that monument. Douglas kind of blistered uh, Abe Lincoln. You know, he said he was he, he looked at at the at at at, at the White House and, uh, and 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 the 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 denizens of the White House and said he's your hero. He's not necessarily ours because we had to bring him along and kind of create him. That that's 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 something that would be lost if that if that monument were removed. Yeah, Phil. Yeah. Um, going back to Stone Mountain, I mean, let's just put a fine point on on it. It was restarted in 1954. It was, well, excuse me, it was made a campaign promise by Marvin Griffin in July of 1954. Guess what happened in mid-May 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. There are no coincidences in this world. And then it was purchased in 1958, two years after the flag was changed. It was part of that whole massive resistance movement. And so that's why it's such a wonderful learning object that started by essentially by the Klan and then finished by the state of Georgia and with massive, massive, massive resistance period. Wow. What can we learn from that? Well, Bill, can I step back in on, on Stone Mountain? And so the question becomes what to do about it. Do you sandblast it? Whatever. The first thing we can do about it is we can share the truth. There's not a marker anywhere in Stone Mountain that lays out what Jim Galloway and Sheffield Hill just spoke to. We can speak the truth. I would hope that one day, uh, and it will come down to the Georgia, to the governor and the House and Senate and the legislature, should one day re-theme Stone Mountain from this mythical romanticization of 
antebellum South and, and transform it into what it has become, a magnet for people of all races, colors, and creeds who come there every day, the number one tourist attraction in the state of Georgia, who come there every day to work together, commune with nature. That's what it should become, not a monument to hate and bigotry, but a, a living, breathing monument to how people of all races, colors, and creeds, and religions can come and work and enjoy nature. All right. With that stirring statement by uh, Mr. Thurman, I've got to get to another break, our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Mary Margaret Oliver, let me start with you, if I can, as we uh, come to our final segment of the show today. So I I spoke to this um, sudden uh, surge of passion around removing statues of people who were either slaveholders or who uh, uh, people think were somehow uh, uh, advancing bigotry uh, against African-Americans and others. So we have things like the uh, Theodore Roosevelt statue, iconic statue in front of the Museum of Natural History being taken down. Not because Theodore Roosevelt was uh, uh, in any way a racist, but because the statue depicts him in a way that is really wrong. He's sitting on horseback. There's a Native American and an African American walking behind him. But there are calls, and people are taking down Jefferson uh, statues, Washington statues down. So I, I say all that to say, Mary Margaret, it strikes me that there is a rage that has built in this country about inequality and about our understanding more and more of the history of inequality. And maybe right now, the passion of the moment, we need to listen to it and understand what it's about and then maybe bring the needle back a little bit. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I think that the passion and the tension um, is significant right now. It feels different to me. And part of it is the danger we're all feeling in, in one way or another about the virus. But on top of the virus, these protesters um, have a significant influence. I'm going to give credit to these protesters. And I'll give credit specifically, again, using the example of Decatur and the Capitol. I don't think that the variety of protest uh, participants is going unnoticed in any way in either a Decatur, which is a unique place, or the Capitol. We were never without protest at the Capitol of the 11 days we were there. I could, uh, based on where my seat was, my uh, social distancing seat, I was close to a window. I could hear the protesters frequently. I saw them in the Capitol frequently. They were present for the governor's signing of 426 in a, in a very you know, respectful uh, manner, in my view. Uh, the level of law enforcement, which bleeds over, of course, to the, the murders we've witnessed on video cameras, uh, the significance of the protest, it's a very unique time. And we're going to make some mistakes. Um, I hope that we'll make a few mistakes and that we'll make a lot of positive moves. The Thomas Jefferson uh, cast iron uh, sculpture was removed from the city of Decatur. Um, at the same time that Mike with the crane took off the obelisk. Uh, and that was a small example uh, of, a, of a significant feeling, a significant set of advocacy around monuments. 
Sheffield, it strikes me that you, who have been one of the uh, uh, smartest voices in terms of how we contextualize uh, these monuments, these statues, really have your work cut out for you now uh, just in talking about what we do about slaveholding founding fathers and how we pay tribute to them. No, it's it's really complicated, and it requires, like I said, nuanced thought and 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 community engagement um, to deal with these statues um, and and who these people were and and why were they were why were these statues put there? Jefferson's statue was not put there, for example, because he was a slaveholder. It was for some other reason. However, there's a lot of baggage that goes around that that were, is requires inquiry and thought and. I, I think all of these statues, what, what they're doing, if we weren't talking about these Confederate statues right now, we wouldn't be talking about Jim Crow. We weren't talking about Jim Crow. We would, Jim Crow explains the inequality that we're dealing with right now. It is all related. So I think that these monuments and these and using them as lightning rods right now are creating an opportunity for a conversation that we've not had before. Um, Michael and Jim, I want to give each of you, Michael, first, we're down to the last couple of minutes, but I want to give you, Mike, first a chance to make a couple of comments as we close the show out. And then, Jim. Well, as it relates to the lost cause and the stone mountain carving, I encourage historians to think about who's not on that mountain. The one general who became a Jordan, who was Robert E. Lee's right-hand guy at Gettysburg, uh, James Longstreet, is not on that mountain. And the reason he's not on that mountain is because after the war, he preached reconciliation. He advocated on behalf of the enfranchisement of black people. He supported providing education for slaves. And he became the first scapegoat of the Lost Cause movement. It was really created to discredit James Longstreet and ultimately accuse him of being the reason the Confederates lost at um, Gettysburg. There yeah, you go, the- Michael Thurman, proving his credentials as a historian. You're, you got the last word, Jim. Yeah, that was that was Jubal Early kind of uh, uh, slandered Longstreet on that. It was it was kind of an uh, uh, an effort to prop up Robert E. Lee during the late uh, uh, late eighteen hundreds. Uh, I would just, Bill, I would just leave you with one thought. We had a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, the AJC had this tremendous photo of National Guard troops surrounding uh, the the statue of John Brown Gordon on the state capitol grounds. I would ha- I would bet dollars to donuts that not a single soldier there, not a single guardsman could tell me who John Brown Gordon was. And that's important. Former governor, but also probably the leader of the Georgia KKK back at the turn of the 20th century. And one of the people who they who the the folks who want to get rid of statues, he's number one target down there. Right. Right, right. Uh, the, the the horse looks pretty good. If you go to, to anybody in the Capitol, they'll tell you that, that, <laughs> right. that that's not the only horse's rear end there. <laughs> All right. All right. I got it. Thank you, Jim Galloway, Mary Margaret Oliver, Sheffield Hale, Michael Thurman, for a very uh, uh, interesting, informative conversation. Thank you all for listening. Uh, We'll be back again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and please stay healthy. Oh, wear a mask. Bye-bye.